Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Gray Wolf Press, publisher of Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth. Barn 8 is uh, Vegan's Ocean 11. It stars a million chickens. It's about a group of washed-up radicals trying to find redemption by attempting the most ambitious heist in animal liberation history. This is a wry and brilliant novel, painstakingly researched and daringly imaginative. It covers chicken intelligence, bird evolution, factory farm conditions, and so much more. Warning, it might make you a vegan. Barn 8, the new novel by Deb Olin Unferth, available now from Grey Wolf Press. Hello. How you doing out there? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. And I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. I have Emily Nemons on the program today. Her debut novel... The Cactus League is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, Emily Nemens is also the editor of the Paris Review, the uh, literary quarterly founded in 1953, I believe, by George Plimpton, Harold Humes, and Peter Matheson. She is the seventh editor of the Paris Review, and I was delighted to meet her and uh, to talk to her about her work uh, as a writer, about her novel, The Cactus League, about baseball, which is a uh, central concern of her novel and of her life, I guess, to a certain degree. You know, all of the above. Just a, just a nice time meeting Emily Nemens, and you're going to hear that conversation right now. I'm, I'm just going to get to it. Is that okay? Let's just get to Emily Nemens. Uh, once again, her new novel is called, oh wait, I forgot. I forgot. I have a uh, message from my sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need help, if something out there is bothering you or something in there, in your brain or in your heart or both your brain and your heart are troubling you, you know what I mean, you can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's very convenient. Whether you're struggling with depression or anxiety or relationships, trauma, self-esteem, grief, whatever, uh, there is a counselor who can help. Anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at no additional cost. This uh, service is available worldwide. And uh, the counselors are, uh, or the therapists are licensed across all 50 states. 
Start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. Available on desktop, mobile, web, Android, and iOS apps. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. This is secure, convenient, professional, affordable help. Please note that it's not a crisis line. Hey, best of all, it's an affordable option. Other people, listeners, get 10% off your first month with the discount code Other People. That's Other PPL. So why not do it? Get started. Get some help. Get going. Go to BetterHelp.com slash Other PPL. Simply fill out a questionnaire, help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash Other PPL. And use that offer code, Other PPL. Okay? All right. Let's get to my guest. Once again, her name is Emily Nemens. She is the editor of the Paris Review, and her debut novel, The Cactus League, is available now from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Here she is, folks. This is Emily Nemens. My dad is a New Yorker and grew up walking distance from Yankee Stadium. Uh. Um, he actually hauled a chair from the original Yankee Stadium all the way across the country and kept it in our basement. Um, they were doing a renovation in the 70s and got rid of all of the original seat, seating. You know, we're going to scrap it or sell it or something. And there was some giveaway if you showed up with, you know, box tops for cigarettes or something like that, you could bring a seat home. And he always joked it was the only thing that we had that also belonged in the Smithsonian. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm the younger of two daughters. My sister loves sports. Obviously, she's a very physical person if she's a firefighter, but um, she wasn't particularly interested or patient enough to watch baseball. And so it became a thing that my dad and I did together. You know, he taught me how to keep score. It was, you know, time during our week. Um, that was for the two of us. I think it was really the only solo time I had one-on-one -on -one with him. Was to go to the games or yeah. watch the games? Go to the games mostly. Watching the games, we did less. I think if we were at home... You know, everyone was doing homework or projects, um, but uh, we would go to the kingdom, which was, you know, ours in that it was the home field, but what a shitty place to watch. I was going to say, I remember those highlights from when I was a kid. I never went to the kingdom, but yeah. I just remember being like, oh, the turf. So I think, you know, watching baseball indoors made the opportunity to start watching baseball outdoors that much more special. Um, particularly in Seattle, there's not that many sunny days. So if it was sunny, we might go up to the Everett Aqua Sox, which is single A, or down to the Rainiers, which is triple. Um, but we do that, I don't know, maybe once a season. So the uh, idea of going to Arizona for a few days watching, you know, three games in three days in the bright sun. It's 90 degrees, whereas in Seattle it had been 40 and drizzly. Um, really felt like throwing open the windows. And baseball is meant to be played outside. Yes. It's like it that's is. It's meant to be enjoyed as an outdoor experience. I think so. Um, Paul Goldberger wrote a book last year um, called Ballpark. That's sort of a history of the architecture of baseball stadiums. And he, he makes just a very cogent... Um, argument for why indoor baseball is the worst thing in the world <laughs> <laughs> i would have to agree though i will say if you're in a climate um you know i'm a brewers fan going back there because everything yeah. stick you know everything from my youth has from stuck home. yeah i cannot muster fandom as an adult yeah. like i can't be like oh now i like the lakers i don't like the lakers no i don't care about them i care about the bucks i care about the pacers yeah um because that's where i lived when i was a kid and yeah you know uh, but I think that 
what I often argue to people who don't have an interest in baseball is that going to a game, even if you're not a fan as an aesthetic experience is incredibly enjoyable. Yeah. And I think it's as like, long as you like the person you're going with, as long as you, yeah. <laughs> cause you're going to sit there and you're going to talk. Right. I uh, mean, there's so much downtime between pitches, between innings that you just spend time with the people around you. Or if it's, you know, a dead of a game, even while the ball is in play, you can be in conversation and have this really wonderful social experience with the person to your left. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I, I love that about it. Yeah. I love the slowness of it. And I love the, um, the beauty of a baseball diamond mm. and the way that it feels like an escape from reality when you kind of come through the tunnel mm-hmm. and there's that beautifully manicured field and there's these, you know, good looking millionaires who play baseball for a living, you yeah. know, like jogging around out there. It's just like, I feel like you're just like detached from whatever, you know, is going on in your life outside of the ballpark. And, um, I wish I did it more. I go, I go to about, you know, two or three Dodger games a year Yeah, and I've taken my kids. There's my daughter can, can go. Um, my son is just getting to the age where it's not like a complete meltdown. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. <laughs> they get, you know, it's like their bedtime and yeah. navigating traffic and you know, all the LA stuff, but, yeah. uh, it's such a beautiful game to watch, but you know, I think there are people out there who are listening who are like, it's so fucking boring. What what do you say to those people who are like baseball? Like what? I would say there's only five innings of baseball in the whole book. Um, It's really about, I think, the community experience that um, comes around the stadium. You know, the book starts, the inciting incident is a new stadium opens in Arizona and everyone's coming in for spring training, which are practice games. I mean, inherently the game doesn't matter in, in this season. So I wanted to think about all the people, sort of the concentric circles of people who cared about this and why. So there are athletes, of course, who are getting ready for the season, but there are coaches who um, want access to those top players for Mm. a few weeks every spring. There's the front office, there's fans, there's concession workers, and, and they're interested. All of them enjoy the game and watching the game the way you just described, but, um, they also have, you know, real human needs and wants and aspirations and those play out, um, in and around the stadium. Yeah. I mean, I mean, your book is, uh, you know, correct me if this is a mischaracterization, nine interlinked short stories, yeah. kind of, kind of, sort of, kind yeah. of, sort of, um, the number nine, no accident also is a, um, examination on a certain level of the post great recession, um, you know, you're in Arizona where, which got hit really hard. Yeah. Um, so you're looking through, you're looking at things through that lens as well. It's not just baseball. No, it's not, you know, and a really early draft, I was looking for an agent and someone read it overnight and called me and said, I don't know what a lead off is, but I love this book. Um, so, you know, at that point I knew I was doing what I hoped to do, which is writing about baseball, but really writing about American culture in the very recent past. I think, a lot of the economic vulnerability and housing um, instability that is explored in the book, you know, was at its perhaps most acute in 2011, but is, you know, continuing for my whole generation. Sure. Yeah. Um, And yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting to juxtapose this new stadium, sort of this really um, celebrated piece of architecture with um, all of the other kinds of architecture that were failing 
in the recession, thinking about domestic architecture where people have been evicted, thinking about domestic architecture where new construction stalled and there's whole neighborhoods that sit empty and half built. And um, so in that way, it's sort of an architecture book. Yeah. And then um, I'm going to mess up the name, the Frank Lloyd Wright. Tally S and West. Yeah. Tally S and West is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, features prominently in the book too. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about the built environment and stadiums as this gathering point. Um, it's amazing that another real landmark of 20th century architecture is just up the street. Frank Lloyd Wright built this compound up on a hill um, as his winter institute, essentially. It was his winter home, but he also had a small college there where he was, you know, I don't know if it was actually a college, but he was training architects and his style of organic modernism and basically made them build the whole compound um, themselves. And they were, you know, camping in lean-tos even farther up the hill. And uh, it's a beautiful place. And seeing that, being there and visiting that space and that version of idealized architecture versus, you know, just down the road, there's these cookie cutter houses that, you know, have stalled out um, during the recession. Or there's, you know, $5 million mansions and this amazing lush golf course in the middle of the desert. There's just so many weird juxtapositions in that part of the world that I wanted to explore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember seeing like the photos of... Uh... I want to, I don't even know if it, it might've been Arizona. It could just as easily have been suburban Las Vegas or somewhere in the inland empire. But you know, there were neighborhoods that go feral yeah, or that went feral because people, you know, couldn't pay the mortgages and they just sat or they didn't sell. So they sat there empty. And then like, there's this great photo of like a mountain lion, just like sitting on the roof yeah. of the house. And you're just like, what? I think that was in Nevada, but I wanted to think about that too. It's not all just new construction. It's places where people have really lived and loved and invested. Um, the book opens with a batting coach who's been coming to Arizona for 40 years. Um, and he has a house in a neighborhood that's on the edge of going feral and how scary that is for him and his wife who just really want the security of a home. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a crazy time. Those, those years in the immediate aftermath of the crash. Yeah. Um, and I don't, we're still not out from under it. I know the economy has been roaring. I feel like most of that's been concentrated in the stock market. Yeah. I uh, haven't seen it. Yeah. Of, I, does, you know, people I mean, just, between student debt and, um, how hard it is to get a mortgage as a first time buyer. Yeah. It's, it's, a uh, it's going to be a long process and I don't think we can unpack it all in this hour, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. I also, you know, I am a writer of fiction, so I wanted to understand the housing crisis and write a story and a portrait of the recession. Um, but there are other books that I think, you know, reportage and 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 studies that look more broadly and deeply at the the specific triggers of the recession. So, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> that's- Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, but to get back to the game, like yeah. the game itself and your personal fandom of it, mm-hmm. um, you ever have conversations with people where they're like, I don't get it. It's boring. What do you say All to those the people? Time. Um, I, I say that's okay. You don't have to go, but I think it's a really wonderful, you said it was an aesthetic experience and I'd agree with that. You know, there's an opportunity to just enjoy the architecture, enjoy being outdoors. I think especially in places like New York, you don't get that many opportunities to sit outside for three hours in nice weather. Um, there's this wonderful athletic performance happening on the field. Yes, it happens slowly. You know, it's it's a bit as opposed to with football where, you know, there's this coordinated strike and everyone's moving at once or basketball where there's constant motion. There's a really sort of a domino effect of how play moves across the field in a way that is slower, but I think is elegant and fun to watch. Um, and like this- and I, I think it's a real, you know, except for the agoraphobes out there, it's a really great community experience. I mean, you've got your friend to your left or your right, but you also are brought together with these other people and, and the momentum and the, the, you know, the collective emotion, the highs are high, the lows are low, but it, it's an interesting experience. I think particularly in our contemporary moment where everyone's so siloed to be experiencing something with somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people. I agree. I agree. And I think too, like knowledge of the game is really critical to, I mean, obviously, but it, it, it bears like underlining it. Like when you know the game and you know how the game works and what the rules are, and then you start to get to know players and like player acquisition strategy and what a player's strengths and weaknesses are and all of the mental aspects of the game and of fandom. I find it incredibly Stim- like that's that part of it is incredibly stimulating. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm just maybe stating the obvious, but it's something that people who are on the outside looking in, wondering why sports people love sports so much. It's, it, it's like, uh, there's something, um, I find it like really relaxing and at the same time, really stimulating to sit there and to try to figure the game out as it's unfolding right. and to anticipate and to try to get inside the manager's head or the coach's head or the GM's head or whatever it is, right. you know, like, is that how it is for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think at points in my life, I was absolutely that deep, but I've sort of pulled back or, or, you know, from that level of fandom, just because I only have so many hours in the day and I have to edit a magazine. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I did really sort of pivot deliberately to a, a more literary lifestyle. Um, there was a year, I think 2012, all I read was sports literature and like as preparation or as, research. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, miss, you know, all the award winners couldn't tell you a thing about what happened in books <laughs> that year. Um, but, I love sort of dipping into that strategy and, and, you know, the trade um, theories and and team development and all of that. But I also love that, you know, being something of a fair weather fan just out of 
necessity because I have too many other things going on. I can, I can leave and come back. Um, you know, I'm sort of a, a crappy fan until September usually. Why is postseason baseball so intense? I mean, like regular season baseball, totally enjoyable. Yeah. Postseason baseball for me is must see TV. I know. I come home. It doesn't matter what game is on. If, you know, it's the seventh inning of anything after Labor Day, I will watch it. It's so good. Um, I like stop reading books at night. (laughs) I just, I'm watching games and trying to figure out, I think trying to catch up and figure out, you know, who are these pitchers? What's the starting rotation like? Who is this reliever that I've never heard of, but clearly had, should have been on my radar. Um, and I like that too. Yeah. That there's the opportunity to sort of, I think because it's such an iterative game, right? There's 162 regular season games. And then, you know, with any luck, you've got a long postseason too. There's opportunities to um, dive back in. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a long season. And, you know, another thing that uh, I've talked about with people over the years is like, well, what are they doing? They're just standing around out there. And I'm like, yeah, but like, like you say, the individual athletic plays require great skill and, um, speed and strength and all the rest, but it's also 162 games over. What is it? Five months. Mm -hmm. I think when you average it out, they're playing 28 days a month. Yeah. Like they play every day. Yeah. They get like one day off a week. So that's the, it's a slog. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, they're also getting paid very well you know, yeah to, major league minimum is not so bad no it's great but you know it's a, it's an endurance sport in a lot of ways and the mental grind of it um is a, is a huge factor so uh, i'm curious to know because your book deals with you know all the different kind of moving parts or many of the different moving parts that surround the game right uh, you know from the organist to um you know, groupies who love the team and are trying to kind of hook up with ball players to coaches, coaches, uh, players' wives, you know, yeah. all those different pieces. Is that purely from your imagination? Did you do field research? Were you trying to put yourself in proximity to those people? Did you interview anybody who has, um, you know, that kind of job or role or existence in researching the book? Um, I didn't do interviews. Uh, I read interviews. I read a lot of interviews and a lot of autobiography. Um, I watched a lot of reportage and documentary and reality TV. Um, I think a thing that I'm interested in, well, one, I'm kind of shy. And two, I was in Baton Rouge for most of this. And and three, you know, so much, the, there's an undercurrent in the book. Um, the, the left fielder, Jason Goodyear, is their star and he's having a really bad season. And a lot of uh, effort is made to sort of triage his public persona and and protect that that essentially that commodity so that he could continue to be the face of the team that he could continue to get advertising deals and I think you know particularly with things like the rise of the athletic and other sort of ways of self-preservation and self-promotion where athletes are talking about themselves in a different way wait is that the athletic or is that the, the Derek Jeter thing you mean Oh, I could be, I'm trying to think, I know what you're talking about. Though. I don't, yeah, we can check. Yeah. Um, but, but it's you, the one where the players, the players, write. the players write with, you know, square quotes around them because it's all ghostwriters writing for the athletes. What is that called? I'm going to, you I'm know gonna, what I'm talking about? Yeah. Cause I think I subscribe to the athletic and that's just like sports journalists 
who, you know, can no longer work for a paper because the paper went under. Right. <laughs> um, but Derek Jeter launched the Players Report. Players Tribune. The Players Tribune. Yeah. That's it. That's it. it. That's Sorry, it. Athletic. I, <laughs> I didn't mean to smear you that way. But um, just, and even before that, I mean, going back to um, Gay Talese trying to track down Joe DiMaggio, like athletes have always been very protective of their... Um, their personal life and and the public and fans i think want more in a way that's not entirely healthy or rational and so that that line between what athletes choose to share and and what they try to protect and how they um tell their own story was really interesting to me so i was reading you know a lot of pete rose um a lot of other memoir as well are there any good ones um I mean, they're all good in their own way. Are, are there any well-written, really compelling w- ones? Would you excerpt any of them in the Paris Review? <laughs> no, no. Um, I loved, there's an early um, oral history called The Glory of Their Times about, you know, really early baseball players um, that I absolutely loved. Not that helpful to writing about, you know, baseball in 2011, but. Well, but, you know, things have changed. Like the culture's changed. And I want to say I read an article about Mike Trout, who is as close to like the Mickey Mantle character of his generation as you can yeah. get. He's a superstar. He's a fa- you know fabulous player. He's the natural. You know he can do right. it all. He could walk down the street unnoticed in almost any American city, which is sort of astonishing to think about when you think about baseball as like America's game. And I think back you know to my childhood even, but especially I guess in the years predating me baseball was it like Joe DiMaggio would be recognized anywhere probably. Right. Um, so I think a lot of these guys, when you talk about their personal lives, they probably go to the ballpark. I think the hardcore fans obviously know who they are, but they can probably live relatively normal existences. I would, I would guess. Yes. No. I mean, I think different markets are different, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Derek Jeter can't go anywhere. Right. Um, and, um, but I, so I think in that way, perhaps, you know, making Jason still this American icon and, and heartthrob was a bit wishful thinking. Jason Goodyear. Yeah. The main, the, the main character, because he is more, you know, he's on billboards. Everyone can recognize him in a way that does feel a little bit out of date. Um, you know, a lot of, I, I was also interested in writing a baseball book when baseball sort of not on the outs entirely, but not nearly as popular as it was. There's a lot of people holding on and hoping to to get, you know, if not total renewal, at least a little bit of an extension of their engagement with the sport or with the life they want. Um, and it feels like that could also be the story of baseball trying to remain Americans' pastime. I hope it does. I mean, I've read there's like some line, you know, some it's a quote, but it was like America used to be baseball and now America is football. And I think there's some truth to that just from the numbers standpoint, but I also think there's truth to it in terms of the character of the country Yeah, Uh, that, you know, we've gone from this kind of like slow, methodical, meditative, beautiful game as our national pastime to basically like Roman gladiator blood sport and like brain damage. Yeah. And that's scary. Um, Paul's book about ballparks also talks about sort of the scale of the stadium and the experience of watching, watching games between baseball and football, you know, baseball stadiums aren't small by any means, but the difference between watching a sport with 40,000 people 
And, you know, LSU's Tiger Stadium is up to like 94,000 people now, right? right? And and you lose a certain intimacy. The way you watch the athletes, the way you interact with the field is a lot different and, and scaled up, you know. And, and the stadiums, baseball stadiums, are historically and traditionally built into the urban environment in, in downtown parks or other places that feel part of the city where football stadiums, you know, are plopped down in the middle of parking lots, um, often in the suburbs. And that also, I think, is, to your point, part of that transition in American culture away from a moment for baseball and towards something that feels more football-like. And and yet, baseball is still an extraordinarily profitable and popular game. Um, I, you know, just living here in Los Angeles, there are many thousands of hardcore Dodger fans. Mm-hmm. This is a big baseball market. It and is. This, well, it's one of the biggest. Yeah. And, so. and uh, New York, I mean, you live in New York, the Yankees are a big deal. So I think, especially like, you know, Red Sox, Yankees, um, Cubs, mm-hmm. there are different markets. I guess, I don't know, you tell me about Seattle. I'm thinking of where the fan bases are the most rabid. Uh, no, it's not in Seattle. You know, in the 90s when I, the team was so good, it was a rabid market. And then... I left for for school in 2001 and have only, you know, been a visitor ever since. And it became a football town. The Seahawks became really popular. And Beast mode. Ooh, I mean, I like beast mode. But <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like beast mode? I love Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one of my defining baseball memories is going to the old Yankee Stadium in 1999. Mm-hmm. I had never been before. Played the Mariners. Mm-hmm. I sat in the bleachers. I don't know if, did you ever go to Yankee stadium? Yeah. Like the old I've one? I've been to both. Yeah. Do you ever sit in the bleachers? I uh, no. Okay. So this was before they stopped selling alcohol in, I think they stopped selling alcohol in the bleachers. When they I did, went, yeah. when I went, they still did. Okay. I witnessed, I want to say double digit ejections. Like it was, it was chaos. Yeah. People fighting, throwing beers at each other. Like it was a rough crowd. Wow. Yeah. And Ken Griffey Jr. was in center field. Yep. And we were sitting close enough to be able to like, like Heckle? make eye contact. <laughs> oh wow! The heckling was outrageous. Yeah, like so over the top, so um, yeah, just like, like sh- shocking to me, and I'm hard to shock. Yeah. And Griffey would have his his glove over his face because he was like laughing into his glove, and would just like turn around like you got to be kidding me. But it was also mean. I mean, they, these yeah. were not like funny jokes. I think he was just laughing because he's like, this is New York, you know, here I am. At least no one was throwing stuff. Oh, they were. Oh. I mean, you know, like throwing beers and, you know, it's just like completely hounding him every mm-hmm. single second that he stood in center field. And, uh, I forget what inning it was, but he hit a home run and the Seattle Mariners won that game. But I was just like, he's because it was kind of like peak of his powers or close to it. Yeah. And he was just like, okay, like F you. And he just you know, hit one to left and they won. And, yeah. um, I don't know. I just remember, I'll always remember that experience and sort of fearing for my life, but also being thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Know? That sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are also the editor of the Paris review and I want to trace, like you have a lot of cool things going on. Like you've published this book to great acclaim, uh, on FSG, you edit the Paris review and prior to editing the Paris Re- review, you were in Baton Rouge 
Yeah. Um, which I have experience with because both of my parents, you know, grew up in Louisiana and went to LSU. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Yeah. And so you, um, just to kind of trace your bio a little bit, born sure. and raised in Seattle, you have a sister, she's now a firefighter. Your dad introduced you to baseball. What, what did your mom do? Was she's she, a nurse. She's a nurse. Okay. And uh, actually, I mean, documented first games were in Omaha, visiting my grandparents because she grew up in Omaha and the, the AAA Royals were there. Oh, well, I was going to so, say the College World Series. Well, also that, but those are harder tickets to get. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So then you go off to Brown. Yeah. So you go to Brown and get your undergraduate degree mm -hmm. in... In art history and studio art. So I'm, you're making a confused face. I get no, it. No, no. I'm not making a confused face. I'm making like a... Oh my, this is a polymath. You can paint beautifully. Thank you. You like are a watercolorist. Yeah. You are a former jazz musician. Yeah. So my high school, uh, Garfield High School, which is the big magnet school in Seattle, had this amazing jazz program. Actually, a drummer from New Orleans moved to Seattle in the 70s and built this musical career and life in Seattle. Clarence Acox, he, you know, had a repertory jazz group. He had a jazz trio. He built this amazing jazz education program at the public school there. Um, I was never a professional musician nor hoped to be one, but several of my classmates and bandmates are, you know, doing it. What, <laughs> what, what instrument did you play? I played baritone saxophone, which wow. is the Lisa Simpson one, the big one. Wow. Um, and can alto, you Can too. you still play? Yeah. Yeah. I have two saxophones and a clarinet in my closet. Um, I don't play often. I'm not good. Um, you know, I think that was, it was this remarkable opportunity to, to see the world. And, um, you know, we played at Lincoln Center. We played at the Montreux Jazz Festival and the North Sea Jazz Festival. I don't know how else I would have gotten to Europe just being a middle-class kid in Seattle whose every family vacation was to go to Nebraska and see her grandparents. Yeah, so yeah. My, all my family vacations or most of them, at least until like high school was uh, Louisiana. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, as you should, like you want to see your grandparents. And so, um, jazz and, and just the, the discipline and the fun of learning something studying something very intensely. I mean, it's sort of the same way. I think, you know, you have this aptitude to learn languages when you're very young and your brain's malleable Soft. in that way. <laughs> um, it was really exciting to just absorb all of that information about the instrument and the history of jazz. And, um, you know, I'm not really playing anymore, but I'm able to write about um, Lester, the organist who's, you know, a, a jazz pianist who broke his hand and so had to sort of get demoted to the minors as it were um that felt like riding a bike yeah you know that stuff yeah and uh do you have musical talent in your family like is there a, a parent or a my mom plays the piano and forced me into it when i was very little like six or seven and i I hated it and told her, you know, this is awful. And then as soon as I started playing the saxophone and wanted to learn jazz theory and understand chord progressions, I went back to the piano because you can, you know, visualize a chord there um, in a way that it's hard to to do the same. You have to play one note at a time on a saxophone, um, obviously. And so I think she was, you know, pleasantly pleased and a little smug that I, like, raced back to the piano. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, some folks sing, um, like in a choral sense. Can you sing? 
No. Okay. No, 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 Thank no. God. I was going to no. start to get pissed off if no, you can sing, too. No, I cannot carry a tune. All right. Um, but that's a long way of saying, like, no no professional musicians or anything like that. But just, um, yeah, my folks, you know, I, I wanted to do it, and they they made it work. At one point, I had my poor mother. I had two saxophone lessons a week. Yeah. <laughs> Parents do a lot. I yeah. mean, you know, you want your kids. I'm going through it right now. Like, you just try to, like, I'm trying to kind of, like, look at the, my kids and see what they're interested in. And then find ways to let them sort of explore that as yeah. opposed to like being like, you've got a, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I would push them towards, but I'm just trying to kind of follow their lead. Right. But then you get into it and it's like, oh God, like right. we've got rehearsals. And my daughter's like really into musical theater and I, you know, I, I can't, neither my wife nor I can sing no. like at all. Uh, so I'm just kind of crossing my fingers. Like maybe yeah. she got some weird, <laughs> maybe we'll get her voice lessons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, she'll figure it out. I mean, it's your voice is a muscle like everything else. I was in a band briefly that I had to play, played saxophone, but also sang backup. And what was the name of the band? It was called Delix and the Army of Funk. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I just worked really hard to, I, I had the ear to know when I was off key and I just worked really hard until I was on key more often. And that was great for like six months I could kind of sing and well, then I mean, it went away again. <laughs> you, but that's a, that's something, that's something to note. Like you can, even if you're not like a natural, you can, you can get better at singing if you train your voice. Right. Um, I just think like, you know, I feel like my favorite singers like have a knack for it, but they aren't too good. Right. When a person's too good at singing, it sort of freaks me out. Oh, it doesn't freak me out. I love it. You love it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't try like in popular music. I, you know, if somebody's like an opera singer, fine. Okay. I was thinking about opera. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know know the first thing about opera, but like that I get. Um, but like in terms of the music I like listen to, you know, on my phone or whatever, I don't trust somebody who can sing that well. Oh, who's like clear as a bell about it. Yeah. Yeah. I like when there's like ragged edges. It's like, Oh, a little little grit. Yeah. They've lived through something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, okay. So you go to Brown, you major in art history. Yeah. You're playing in, um, a funk band. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming this was college when you were doing Yeah. It. Yeah. Um, did you have any idea that you were going to be a literary person at that point? It sounds like you were going to be a visual artist or. I did. Um, I was writing a book that is resting comfortably, um, under my bed, you know, in a, in a, in a box of college work. I was always interested in being a writer. But um, I felt like I could self-direct that study and that it would take a lot longer. Whereas, you know, I could learn the history of art in a few years with, you know, several, uh, a course sequence in a way that I didn't have access to that previously. Um, I was just totally fascinated and excited and wanted to learn it all. The other thing, and I'm sorry to trash Brown, but... um, the Britlet sequence was notorious for English majors and nobody enjoyed it. And, you know, it was a real um, financial sacrifice for my family and me personally to get to college and the idea of spending, you know, that many credit hours being miserable right, <laughs> sounded awful. And I was just totally captivated by art history and learning these things that, you know, our family went, my family went to art museums occasionally growing up, but I just did not even understand that vocabulary, that conversation. And it was so exciting. That being said, you know, there's also a wonderful creative writing program at Brown 
um, that I was sort of adjacent to. I took a couple of writing workshops and I was very close to Michael Harper, Michael S. Harper, the poet who'd been teaching there since the seventies. And for us, we really connected our, our intersection was jazz. And, you know, he writes so much about jazz musicians and American history as it's manifest in, in music, um, sort of sense. Yeah, across the century. And so he really took me under his wing. Um, so I was thinking about writing the whole time. Okay. And so you get out of Brown. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming the band breaks up. I don't know. And the band was older than me. Oh. Um, I was, you know, the little, um, yeah, I was the youngest person in the band. So the band was gone. Um, okay. I got a job at a fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art doing editorial work for their education department. And I started four days after graduation. So I didn't even really have a chance to get scared about moving to New York. I just sort of had to show up for the first day of work. Um, my first month, uh, a friend, this was wait, several years before the recession, um, a friend got one of those entry-level banking jobs that used to happen where they'd give you a big signing bonus and say, you know, have a nice summer off. So she'd rented a place, bought a king-size bed, and gone to South America to backpack for a month. So I I spent my first, you know, six weeks in New York in this empty apartment um, trying to figure out how to do it. Well, that's kind of nice. It was great. I mean, I could either sit on the floor or on the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a, like, I mean... A totally different but sort of similar experience um i had a friend who was in real estate and was like flipping houses and um he bought a house out in longmont colorado i went to boulder so i was like mm. living in boulder and working there after college and uh he's like you know i just bought this old house and you know i was like making no money he's like if you want to live in it yeah. And he's like, I, I, you know, I think like the next four months I'm working on another thing. It's going to be empty. Yeah. You can live there for free. That's awesome. So I was like, okay. Yeah. And I moved out to Longmont, didn't know a soul. And I'm in this giant old, like 120 year old house. And I've got like a bed and maybe a chair and maybe like a table. Yeah. I mean, it was probably like a 3000 square foot house. That's awesome. It was kind of creepy though. <laughs> there was like an old horse stable. Yeah. Like it was, it was just so that random. sounds haunted. It smelled like, it sm- <laughs> smelled like, you know, mothballs and yeah, you know, like, uh, like people had lived there a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, it was at one point, you know, both very prestigious and amazing to be walking into the Metropolitan Museum of Art every morning. But, you know, we also, our office was in the sub basement and it was a paid fellowship, but it was $20,000 a year before taxes. And it was, you know, I was in New York, in New York, I was scrappy. You gotta be. Yeah. Um, I ended up moving like down to Greenwood Cemetery area in Brooklyn. And one of my men, one of my um, roommates brought home an older woman, um, one night and or had a friend over, I'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she was looking around uh, the apartment, and I had a big stack of paintings. And she said, oh, I like that one. How much is it? And I gave this number that felt crazy. But, you know, it, and she bought it. Like, she just wrote a check for it. And that was, you know, 
a month of living in the city for me at that point. Wow. So yeah, it was... Good for you for asking hi. (laughs) I mean, not that high, but um, it it was, you know, a lot of duct tape and bubble gum got me through that year. That's how you do it. But I mean, that's what you can do that when you're young. Yeah. It gets harder, I think, as you get older. Yeah. Um, so you, I didn't realize that you had lived in New York before yeah. the Paris review. So you had some experience there. I did. Yeah. I lived in, after that first year in South Slope, um, Greenwood area, I lived up in Williamsburg and all of your cliches about, you know, young artists in Williamsburg. But that's um, when Williamsburg was Williamsburg. It was cool. It was, it was wonderful. I was still painting, um, with oils at that point and big, um, and just to make things more complicated for myself, I was working on panel and like to drill into the panel with a Dremel and with then a what? like a, with a Dremel, like with a little power tool. Oh, okay. So I was, I was doing relief work into the wood and then building up a lot of paint with wax to say it was really, really, really messy. <laughs> and, um, also something you can do when you're young. You're like, yeah. Who cares? I know. I know. <laughs> except for the off gassing was a real thing. And, um, I, I say that just because my first studio in Williamsburg, the exhibition that was on at that time was these hand-drawn maps that were sort of building out all of the, um, the webs of relationships of artists in Williamsburg going back, you know, 40 years and, um, the folks who had started living in lofts there in the sixties and I guess mostly in the seventies. Um, and man, talk about history on your shoulders. I was just, it was so exciting and such a, you know, intimidating, but helpful orientation to this, this neighborhood that had been an arts community for so long and was sort of right on the cusp of losing that. Right. Isn't that sad? It, uh, yeah. It bummed me out. Uh, um, so then you, did you go from Brooklyn or Williamsburg to Baton Rouge? Yeah. So at what point do you say, I'm, I'm going to go get my MFA? Um, I said it a couple of times in terms of applying for grad school um, and not getting in or not getting in with the right funding. Um, but I said it for real and emphatically in 2011. Um, I'd been working for several years at the Center for Architecture and the American Institute of Architects New York chapter, which is, you know, sort of like the Bar Association for architects, but they also have, um, this big public engagement component. They have a storefront, a small museum for design. And, um, it was great work. It was really fun. It was really interesting trying to make architects cogent and compelling and convey the importance of design, sort of taking architects speak and making it accessible to, you know, me. Yeah. Smart people who might not think about design all the time. Um, it was a really good editorial task and a lot of fun, but I was reading like no literature at all. And I just, you know, thought, wait, I want to be a writer. This is important to me. Um, so I, I applied again to grad school with a bit more intention looking for the right program. And that was Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Was, was there any trepidation where you're like, what am I doing moving down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana? I mean, it was crazy, right? I had to go from sort of epicenter, hip Williamsburg lifestyle to, to sort of an exurban small city in the deep South was, was, um, I got a lot of side eye that summer, but (laughs) it was good. I mean, it's a, Louisiana is a complicated, um, place, but I feel it was such a gift. You know, I thought I was going for six semesters and I stayed for seven years. It was challenging 
at times, but what a gift to get to know that culture and that community as well as I did, because it's, you know, having lived on the West Coast, lived on the East Coast, have family in the Midwest, having written a book about the Southwest, Louisiana is a special place. It is. I, I always try to tell people it's, you know, it's a, I think complicated is the right word, but it's also a very rich culture Yeah. in ways that distinguish it from most everywhere in the States. Not that every place doesn't have its own identity, but Louisiana has a real identity. Yeah. And it's, you know, great food. Um, people can be so much fun. Yeah. And uh, music is great. I mean, if you if you like jazz, that's a yeah, good place I, to be. Yeah, I'm kid in a candy store. Um, you know, and one of the good things about Baton Rouge, um, you know, it often felt like the New Jersey to New York City in terms of um, the, the conversation between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Um, it was really square and didn't have any of sort of the nightlife or the social fabric of New Orleans, which was an hour and a half down the road. But one of the great things about being there is you're sort of halfway between New Orleans and Cajun country and getting to know all of the music um, from that part of the state, which is, you know, an entirely different thing. Um, what, like Zydeco? And like Zydeco and um, all the two-step, all the accordion music. And um, that was really fun to get yeah, to know. Yeah, yeah. No, I had I a good buddy that was originally from Lafayette and he just was wonderful in terms of showing us around. And, um, yeah, I still can't do the two step, but I tried, <laughs> yeah, tried real hard. You know, I did. My cousins used to drag us out to these line dancing bars when I was growing up. We'd go do like the electric slide and yeah. I'm the worst dancer in the world. So. Yeah. But the spontaneous line dance is amazing and it's not just at dances but like at parades or at street fairs like there'd be a band and then you know people are sort of shuffling around and all of a sudden there's this like little cluster of women who are moving in um in step in this beautiful and somehow they that you know they know what to do and, yeah, yeah. and then you've got it sort of expands outward and outward and then there's suddenly 50 people doing a line dance or just like second line at a wedding. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. I've been to so many, I have so many cousins. My mom comes from a family of nine kids. So oh, wow. I've got yeah. a lot of cousins. So you've done a lot of a lot second of, lines, a lot of second lines, <laughs> a lot of second lines and a lot of holidays spent down there. A lot of time spent in new Orleans. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, it's near and dear. And I, uh, because so much of my extended family lives there, even though I never lived there, I feel like that's my roots. I mean, that's yeah. where my grandparents are from. Yeah. So my great grand my great grandparents, that's where they landed, basically. Have you had any king cake oh, this yeah. season? My aunt Nancy used to send me one every year, but yeah. I, I didn't get one this year yet. I didn't get one this year. No. Um I brought one to the office last year. Um my boyfriend ordered several and he brought one to work and we had one at home and I brought one in and everyone was like, What is that? Why is there so much sugar on it? <laughs> Just don't eat the baby Jesus. <laughs> Yeah. So for people listening, can you describe what a king cake is? Yeah. So what between Epiphany and Lent, there's several weeks, six weeks. I'm, I mean, I'm Jewish. My, my Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic. I know nothing. Under understanding is, is, uh, nil, very small, but there, there's, um, this season, you know, after Christmas before Lent that sort of is this escalating celebration, um, towards Mardi Gras and the king cake is this dessert it's um sort of like an egg bready cake 
thing, often it's filled with something delicious, like either a cream or a berry filling, or, you know, they've gotten more creative as time goes on. Um, and they're often painted with um, sprinkles. The traditional colors are yellow, green, and purple. And somewhere in there, um, there is a little figurine of the baby Jesus. And if you get the baby, it's good luck. And if you get the baby in your slice of cake, it's hidden somewhere you can't tell from the top. Um, if you get the baby, it's good luck. But if you get the baby, you also have to get the next king cake. Right. Um, and I, when I was working at LSU Press, it started like on January 7th, like the first Friday after Epiphany cake started coming. And, you know, if you got the baby, you had to bring the next cake, but you also had to bring a better cake than the week before. And by, you know, mid-February, we were getting just these elaborate, <laughs> amazing, ridiculous king cakes. And um, no one wanted the baby at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I mean, it sounds like you embraced, I mean, you, of course you lived there for seven years. You yeah. got into it a little bit. I did. You have a fondness for it? I do. I do. I mean, working for the state of Louisiana um, during a recession and um, sort of the long fallout of Bobby Jindal in terms of what he did for higher ed in the state was really demoralizing. Um, Because you were the editor of the Southern Review. Yeah. So I went down for graduate school and I had been working as a graduate assistant at the Southern Review. Um, My boss quit between my second and third year of grad school. And, you know, I... They were doing the national search, but I also knew, you know, I had been working at this magazine for two years. I had most of a decade of work experience, you know, starting with the Metropolitan um, back in New York, and I wanted the job. And so I I transitioned to a full-time editor in 2013 and sort of um, gathered up my last credits for the master's degree eventually. Is, is Cactus League your thesis? started that way. It started that yeah. way. Okay. I mean, so my thesis took rather than the normal three years, four years to write because I was working full time um, across years three and four. And then, you know, but that was 2015. So it took another four years after that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're an editor, you edit people. I, I think I read some interview where you were talking about your frustration, um, over, you know, getting submissions from people who are in a hurry to publish and haven't taken the proper amount of time to revise. So it sounds like you practice what you preach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I was ready to sell a story collection in 2015, um, set in Arizona, but I'm so glad I didn't. And yeah. I couldn't, you know, it was, it was a market thing. Um, but I took it back and thought, how can this be a more compelling story? And it was a pretty obvious missed opportunity to, to have these stories not talking to one another and to not build the momentum uh, across the season. Of course, they're practice games, but at the same time, there is sort of the countdown clock of 80 guys are trying to get on this team and only 25 will. Um, So I wanted to lean into sort of the the, um, implicit established timelines there. Yeah. And then... Um, what did you learn? Like, can you talk a little bit about the time that you spent editing the Southern review, which, mm-hmm. um, paved the way to you becoming editor of the Paris review? Uh, like what was, what, what is it? What's the learning curve like yeah. when suddenly you're at the helm of a, of a literary magazine? Yeah. The learning curve was, um, steep, but 
great. Um, you know, I'd been reading submissions for and um, sort of looking over the shoulder of the editor for a few years before I took the seat. So I had sort of a nuts and bolts sense of what had to get done. You know, we were a staff of two editors, and so I read every piece of fiction that came in. And um, Who submits them? Combination? Was, like agents submitting? Yeah, there's some agents. We didn't pay that well, so there weren't that many agents. It was a lot of, you know, emerging writers who, uh, a lot of realist fiction because that was sort of our tradition. It was never, despite the name, never a Southern literary publication. It was national and international from the beginning, but did have this strain of Southern literature. And so understanding that and and hitting that balance felt important to me. Um, you know, I did work with agents and did solicit some work, but not that much because, uh, you know, a, a priority for me that first year of editing was understanding who wants to be a part of this community, who is raising their hand and saying, I want to publish in this magazine. And, you know, it was, um, there were writers like James Lee Burke, who, you know, had this long relationship with the magazine and LSU Press. And, um, and emerging writers where this was their first published piece. And, and so not to say I sat back and wasn't, you know, engaging with writers very actively, but I did think it was important as someone who was young and, um, you know, hadn't, was given a big opportunity and I didn't want to, you know, my ego to say, this is the direction of the magazine. I really wanted to be responsive to what the magazine needed, what it had been and where it could organically and sustainably grow. That, um, that seems wise. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, because, and I think the same would, I think the same exact thing would hold true at the Paris review. Like you want to make it new and you want it to grow, but you also have to recognize that you're operating within a tradition that's like worth right. preserving. Right. Right. I am 36. The magazine is 67. You know, yeah. I, I recognize that for all of my good ideas, there's several generations of, of great ideas and really hard work. And I want to acknowledge that, embrace that, be a good steward for that. And then, you know, move the needle a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, as listeners might've, uh, extrapolated talking about saxophone and baseball and visual arts. And, um, like I'm a pretty eclectic person and my taste definitely reflects that, but understanding that, you know, we operate in this tradition, um, as I'm acquiring perhaps a, a broader range of storytelling. So let's talk about the transition from <clears throat> Baton Rouge back to New York city. The Paris review job comes open after, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a scandalous thing with Lauren Stein, um, uh, stepping down because of, uh, you know, what bad behavior, um, and all of that is well-documented. Yeah. So suddenly that comes open and you, you find out about it. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you send in your resume and application. Yeah, I applied, you know, um, they advertised the job on the site and, um, I applied from Baton Rouge. My boyfriend, um, very wisely said, you know, you're doing great work down here. Um, you should be recognized, you know, you're a contender. I think I felt, you know, there's no way they'd pick someone up from Louisiana, even if it is a near peer journal, it's, you know, our circulation is so much smaller. Our staff is much smaller. Um, but you know, that year we'd won two O Henry prizes and three 
best American short stories. Timing is everything. So, um, <laughs> well, and hard work is almost everything, right? right? Like I was doing the work and I loved the work and I knew as much as I loved the Southern Review, I'd sort of hit a ceiling in terms of professional growth there. So yeah, I applied. Um, it was a, a long and rigorous and really generative application process in terms of conversations with different stakeholders at the board level. And yeah, um, how does the Paris review work? You get, there's like a board, you have to fundraise. Yeah. We're a 501 C three, um, which, you know, is hard. Um, but given sort of the way so many media organizations are losing money, at least, you know, we're doing it on purpose and, um, operating at a loss that's getting smaller every year, you know, we're at a record high circulation and, bringing in more revenue and being, you know, smart and lean about how we spend our money, but. And a great online presence. Thank you. Yeah. Like really good. Yeah. The daily is wonderful. And, you know, we've, we've done a second season of the podcast and are always sort of thinking about how the internet's moving and how to preserve the print quarterly and have that legacy publication feel current and vibrant. But the internet uh, happens is happening you know, is a, is a real asset and a necessity given that we do have these occasions four times a year. Yeah. Well, and you've also, you know, you've got the great legacy and the archive. I think of like that archive of interviews that, um, you know, is just sitting there and it's such yeah. a gold line, uh, for readers and writers. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, as somebody who interviews people, I love the Paris review interviews. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about you. You get the job. Get the job. They're like, it's you. Like, how did you find out? Where were you? Um, I was in New York still. Um, I had an interview that was very different in tone um, than the previous ones, which is, you know, there were a few questions. and You're like, this is getting serious. I think I might have this. And I was either like, well, either I got this or the person before me got it. And... You know, they just are, they know that and they're being polite. It's one or the other. Right, right, right. Um, so I went downtown and um, was meeting with a girlfriend um, for a margarita. And I think I'd had like one sip of it. Was, it. it was 11 a.m. It was, no, it was, it was 5.30. I think I'd had like one sip and I got a call. Oh, uh, perfect. And so um, I didn't finish the drink because um, I had to go meet somebody right away. That's but so great. Yeah. So um, that was in April and, you know, it was a busy transition because I was trying to wrap up um, my last issue in Louisiana and get ready um, for this big move in my first issue in New York. So that was slightly madcap spring and summer. <laughs> sure. And um, you come on board, mm -hmm. fresh, like the fresh face, new leadership, um, an unorthodox choice a little bit, because yeah. it, I think the Paris review has traditionally been so, you know, so super tied to like New York literary culture. Right. So to bring somebody in from the outside, I think it's the first time they've done that or right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the other recent editors have been New Yorkers. Yeah. yeah. So I'm imagining you had like part of your interview process was having conversations about what direction you might take it. Right. I would imagine too, that like you sort of have to get in there and do the job and get to know the staff and start to read the submissions and start to think it through on the fly a little bit. Can you talk about how you have conceived of like where to lead this thing and how to run it and like how that has maybe evolved like since you've had the job. Right. 
Um, well, what we were talking about earlier in terms of legacy and stewardship, I, you know, knew that any growth that we'd have would be incremental, that I didn't want to, there's so many things that the magazine was doing wonderfully. And, um, I wanted to understand those systems, figure out how to do them and then innovate or improve. Um, you know, I'm a very iterative person, which is part of why I love the quarterly format is you do it, you learn a ton, you do it again. Um, so I think in terms of everything from, you know, the typography and the issue and, and design details to um, how the managing editor and I split editorial work, um, because there's really three of us touching the magazine every quarter. We have four people working on the website, uh, a few other colleagues working on events and finance and things like that. Um, so... It wasn't, you know, there wasn't a record scratch particularly um, or a reboot as much as, you know, understanding systems, improving them and um, and sort of, you know, um, turning on lights in different corners and and thinking about new directions. And Um, and expanding the, I think, expanding the range of voices that the that the review features. yeah i mean lauren stein had great taste but it was in a pretty narrow register um often not always but um you know i just i'm really excited sort of about the the breadth and possibility of fiction and short fiction and and thinking about you know the interview series we're in we're like 430 into writers at work and what you know it's the bread and butter has always been art of fiction art of poetry but who are some folks who we haven't gotten around to yet are they fiction writers or you know are they translators and so you know both continuing those those main avenues of the interview series with inquisitiveness and ambition but also thinking about the other ways people are writing yeah and um when i think about you know i think from people thinking about uh a publication like the Paris Review or the New Yorker, mm-hmm. any of these sort of like august like literary publications that are mm-hmm. um, in New York and have been around a while. It's like, how do you get in there? Right. So I think people listening are like, how do I? I have a, I have a great short story, and so I think sometimes the from the outside looking in perspective can be like, well, you got to know somebody. Right. And it's all sort of like inside baseball to continue the, that the, <laughs> the metaphor, you know, yeah. but it's like, oh, so this agent is actually like, you know, their kids are in preschool together or like, you know, they have lunch together, they're social friends. And so then a story gets passed and like everything that comes out of the slush pile doesn't even get touched. And right. you sort of got to know somebody like, is that, how, I mean, how does it actually work? Well, I think one of the real strengths and differentiating things about my application and why I'm an interesting and I think right editor for the publication is, you know, editing in Louisiana for all those years, I understand that there is this writing community operating outside of New York. There's amazing writers everywhere. Um, And the sort of decentralized literary community of university writing programs or people just living in parts of the country with lower cost of living so you can write more. Right. Um, And you know, that was, I put Mary Miller in my first issue and that story won a push cart, oh, yeah. you know, so she's wonderful. And, you know, I admired her work for a long time living in the South and, you know, being in the next state, but we'd never worked together at the Southern Review. So, um, 
you know, I, I thought, I think that holding on to that national scope and recognizing our readers too, plenty of people in New York read the magazine, but our second um, readership cluster is here in Southern California. And, and there is, is it really, yeah. Interesting. And, um, there are, there are readers everywhere in between. And so recognizing that and, and making, um, an effort to engage with readers in those other places, whether it means, you know, I'm on the road more or we're a bigger presence at AWP, um, or, you know, we're just amplifying the work of writers who are parts of communities outside of New York. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like almost like, I mean, to, to keep with the sports thing, it's like having, like having sort of like a scout mentality because there is so much talent and yeah. it is so uh, diffuse. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talent in Brooklyn, but there's a lot of talent. Right. And I think, you know, there's a lot of editors who have their writers and work with them and edit them deeply. Um, and I do that too, but I do feel so much like a scout finding new writers, you know, maybe publishing that first story I encounter, but much more often saying, you know, send me another. And it's six months later, that story's better. Send me another. How do people submit? Do they just, do they just email you? Or well, what? very exciting. We have online submissions as of about three weeks ago. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read every submission at the Southern Review and it was like going through withdrawal to understand that I can't personally put eyes on everything coming in, but we do have a reader program and sort of a, a pretty clear stepladder of promising work gets sent up the ladder to the editorial staff quickly. Um, that happens on the print side with, you know, paper copies, which is logistically a bit challenging. And I'm excited um, with online submissions that we can, that interface, I think will be even more accessible and streamlined. And do you typically spend a lot of time? I mean, it just seems like more and more in publishing, it's like, it's gotta be close to finished. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, something might show great promise, but we're not going to spend the time helping you nurse it to to the finish line. Like you've got to have it pretty I much mean, ready. It's, it, it really, it's case by case. Um, you know, we can, because it's a discrete object of a story, you know, there, there, we have some capacity to get it to the finish line in terms of really um, promising writers, either early career writers whose work is, you know, they could really use the assist or, um, writers we've long admired and we want their work to look the best possible um at this point in their publishing career in both of those cases i'm sort of ready to roll up my sleeves um work that you know isn't finished because the writer doesn't recognize that there's more work to do i'm more likely to pass on those pieces right and so how many submissions are you guys dealing with is i bet it's about to go up um, when I went digital at the Southern review and it doubled, so that's what I'm embracing for, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I'm sort of ready to, you know, hit the off switch with apologies. If we go much beyond that, you know, I think people don't think about is there are hard costs with technology. I mean, submittable is in the cloud, but there are storage costs for that company and there are hard costs that are, you know, for, for having, um, the technology and using it for our staff. And because we're a larger, um, group, you know, it just, it ends up being a tangible and significant cost for the magazine. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I know how much we've budgeted in terms of how many submissions we can 
except without going over that cap. And um, it's a big number. I mean, I'm really planning for a lot more stuff coming through our door. So, okay. So that means you can like, you can, you're paying to like store all the files that come in when people are submitting. Yeah. Submittable is free if you charge for submissions. Oh, but you're not charging. But we're not charging. So we incur the cost of maintaining this platform and whatever. I mean, don't cry me a river. It's, it's a necessary cost and I'm glad to do it, but they're just like logistics around setting up a portal that's ready to get 5,000 submissions. Right. Uh, like, uh, a quarter uh, oh, a day. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was like a hundred a day for that first week we opened. And so you get them and like, you can kind of tell Like you read the first couple pages. If it's not happening, you put it down. Yeah. That's how you got to do it. Yeah. That's and how you, you got to do it. And you have form letters, which are, I think like, like a lot of writers sort of like grit their teeth and they go a form letter, but that's just the, you, what are you going to do with 5,000 submissions? No. And you know, we have form letters that are sort of tiered between this is not right. Um, sort of a hard no. And this is not right, but we really admire your writing. I tell writers always, if you get a kind rejection, take that to heart. You know, we're not doling that up those out generously. Um, if someone says, if an editor says, no, but thank you, we were really excited about this. It just didn't quite work. Write that editor again. Yeah. Okay. That's good advice. Yeah. Um, do you ever hand write a note like on top of it? Oh know? yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm... Those are always like people get excited about that. Yeah. <gasps> There's yeah. a person, a person actually wrote to me. Yeah. I like <laughs> a good blue, um, roller ball. Okay. Pen. Something to look out for, for people listening. Um, what has it been like for you? Cause at the Southern review, like you're a, it's a smaller pond yeah. and then you get this job, which is a fancy job in the culture within a narrow channel, like liter American literary culture. You know, I don't have to tell you it's like, it's niche. Yeah. Um, but you're in New York, which mm -hmm. is where, you know, the epicenter is. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're the editor of the Paris review people are treating you differently. I bet like writers are like, Ooh, like you have to feel that a little bit. Like you walk into a room, you, do you ever question like, are people being nice to me because they actually want to be my friend or are they being nice to me because they want to be in the Paris review? Do you get that? Have you had to navigate that or had any weirdness or difficulty with that? I mean, of course I have to navigate that. Um, uh, but people, I think I'm a pretty good judge of character. Um, I think I'm a pretty forgiving person. Um, so you also know what it's like to be a writer. I know what it's like to be a writer. Um, so navigating it hasn't been that hard. I mean, it's interesting. I think, you know, I'm a soft spoken person. You are kept trying to push my levels up on the microphone. <laughs> I have these uh, levels cranked all the way. Up. Um, you know, I'm a middle aged, middle height woman who like, has some nice outfits, but like, isn't a particularly flamboyant personality in the way that George Plumpton was, you know, this tall lightning rod entertainer of a host. And I just remember that first year, so many people, you know, didn't know what I looked like, didn't recognize me, or I'd give remarks and then come down off the pool table and they still wouldn't remember what I looked like. Wait, you were um, standing on a pool table? Oh yeah. yeah in the office. Okay. In the office when we have our launch parties. Um, uh, it gets kind of crowded. So I'll take my heels off and get on the pool table and yell. <laughs> um, so I, that kept me humble. You know, it is this prestigious job and it is the center of something, but you know, I'm still me and, uh, 
just sort of a middle of the road person doing a lot of work. And yeah, like what is the day to day? Because you're, you know, you are overseeing all of it. It's like yeah. the quarterly, the website, the events, right. the fundraising, or whatever. Like you have your hand in all of those jars. So, like, is that like what does a typical day for you look like? Um, there's not really a typical day. You know, I the first year in particular, I really wanted to understand how everything worked, and so I think I put my hand in every jar, maybe you know, up to up to the wrist, if not the elbow, right? I was just really involved in everything from the details of our fundraiser and, you know, what the invitation looked like to, um, don't use comic sans. No, come on. No. Um, (laughs) you know, in the web team, they're producing content so quickly that was, you know, sort of already an oiled machine when I arrived. And so our conversations are, you know, more sort of top level what's coming up. Um, what's sort of the goals for this quarter, that kind of stuff. Um, because if I was, you know, editing, pieces going up every three hours. Yeah. <laughs> that would be crazy. Um, oh, and in terms of submissions and what you guys publish, yeah. you have the quarterly print right, and which, you have the website. Right. And the website, you know, is a bit more, operates a little bit more like your traditional culture publication in that a lot of those are based on pitches, um, nonfiction writers writing, um, you know, interactions with arts and culture um, sort of offbeat commentary and criticism, um, interviews, single essays and columns, and you know, so and excerpts of forthcoming publications and um, and some visual arts features. And, and and so those editors, you know, they're doing more developmental edits with writers that they've worked with before. There is, you know, a pitch email that you can cold call the web team with pitches. Um, But yeah, it's a slightly different process. And do you, I mean, I I know that like at the Southern Review, you were getting, you know, people submitting, I guess, from all over, over the transom. But I have to imagine in New York, you're fielding calls from agents and editors. And do you want, yeah, like that, that's part of it too. That's part of it too. Um, And, you know, understanding, wanting to have, I was really proud of, you know, my first full year of fiction acquisitions. Um, I think five people. Um, with major stories hadn't sold a book yet. So really early career writers, not, I mean, one of them, it was her very first publication, but in the other cases, you know, the, every issue had someone that was very early in their career. Um, but, you know, my, I see Blacklight up there, like identifying this is, you know, the best story collection I've read this year. Let's get a story from this before the book comes out. Um, and how exciting for Kim. Um, I, had that great, it was, I had a great time talking with Yeah, her. that, you know, it was then long-listed for the National Book Award as a paperback original debut story collection. So, you know, there's, there's sort of, I'm trying to make this interesting sort of balance for the reader in every issue of understanding, you know, these are going to be important books this year. Let's Let's draw attention to that writer. This is a brand new writer where we can really... Um, be a change agent in their writing career. And that's such a cool thing to and, be able to do. And these are writers that you maybe have known for years. Here's what they're up to now. Right. Right. But that's, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know, just for me personally, like the excitement of like being able to like find that talent in its early stage and yeah. to help introduce it to a wider audience. has yeah. got to be like super fun. Yeah. That part's great. That part's great. And you, you must have, I mean, I guess as an editor, it's your job but because you swim in it and you're yeah. in the bit, you know, you're in New York and you're surrounded by books and publishing and all the 
people who work in that business, you do get a sense. I mean, I have one out here in LA in my garage because I get Mm -hmm. books sent to me all the time and I read book media online, but you do, I feel like I've developed a sense of like, this book's got energy around it. I don't know how, and it's usually right. Yeah. You might, I mean, you know, like Kim's book, for example. Yeah, I do. I do get that. And you were asking, you know, my interactions with agents and editors, like, you know, it's, I try really hard to sort of straddle that line of being in the industry and getting to know, um, you know, not socializing a ton because I'm trying to protect my time to be a human and see my friends outside of publishing, but, you know, getting to know, um, sort of the engine of the industry. Um, so they send me their best work. Right. Um, and because they're nice and interesting people with good ideas. Um, but then also being, um, really making an effort to connect with writers sort of without the interface or the gatekeeping of agents and editors, um, being a writer myself, I just need to make sure that writers are still a part of my life. Being an editor, I want to be a resource to writers directly. And so, um, yeah, that's, you know, I, I sort of block out a certain amount of time on my calendar every every month to either have a breakfast with a writer whose work I like or take someone out to dinner and just, you know, what are you working on now? Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. But usually it's about works in progress. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think, I think that's like a healthy thing to do. And, then- and yeah. And then the other component of that is going out on the road and showing up at writing conferences and other sort of concentrations, whether it's a- AWP or I've gone to Sewanee several times, I'll go out to Tin House and, and, you know, talking about that decentralized community of writers who are, are you know, have raised their hand and say, I want to do this better. I, I really want to elevate my work. Um, I, I'm going to invest in it, you know, both the, the daily practice, but travel to, um, to this intensive where hopefully, um, my work will grow. That's been really helpful for me to show up in those places. And do you sort get of invited to a lot? I mean, you must get invited to handshake campaign. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I get invited to a lot. I say no to most just because I also need to be, you know, in New York doing my job and in New York doing my life. Um, but I try to go to a few every summer. Right. So what is it like then? Uh, what has it been like for you publishing the cactus league and sort of shifting into this role of the writer? So now right. you're the one getting edited. You're the one receiving the reviews. So you're kind of getting to experience the process from that right. side of the, line. well, the reviews have been good. So that <laughs> <laughs> is, um, is fun. Um, it's, a uh, it's weird. It's interesting. Um, you know, working on a quarterly, you have to sort of shift gears, um, between different writers and between different formats and, you know, becoming expert in eight writers work every year in terms of the writers at work interviews. I just am, it's sort of, um, it's a really intensive, you know, now at this point when I'm editing a writer, I try to read at least several stories by them previously. So I get a sense of their cadence and, and the scale of and scope of their storytelling. So I have a better sense of, you know, is this a departure? Um, is this a strength? Is this, does this feel like an outlier, um, for better or for worse, you know? Um, so I'm reading and just really, um, becoming expert or trying to become expert in a lot of people's work very quickly. Um, you know, on the cadence of a quarterly. So that's intense um, to be 
concurrently working on the same project for nine years now. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's, when did, a, so it's when a very did, different register. Um, and it's strange. It was great to get editorial notes from Emily Bell at FSG. It was very, she's a very different editor. You know, it was a four page letter of sort of top level things, um, thinking about several chapters that she thought were weak. Her solution was to get rid of them entirely. I was aghast and totally crestfallen. And I got rid of one of them and made the other two work. Um, you know, I was ready to go to Matt for those. One, I was like, oh yeah, she's right. Um, but the other two, I was like, there's no way that I'm getting rid of the Tommy John surgery so and but like in the nine the number nine yeah like you did you wanted to keep nine right i wanted to keep nine yeah um thinking about this starting as a story collection and transitioning it into a novel and stories and being someone who thinks about the story form all day every day um i really wanted to and thinking about baseball and the strength of watching a game the the really fun capsule of the inning beans you know well the at bat being i guess you can start at the pitch and then the at bat and then the inning being these possible narrative arcs and and there's a certain feeling of completion at the end of an inning that i wanted to um mimic structurally in the book um so every i mean the chapters and turning it into a novel of course it's not so discreet as this is the end hard stop at the end of every story. Um, but I wanted to preserve as much of that, um, momentum, uh, as I could and have it sort of, uh, exploit the structure of a baseball game as much as possible. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I think it's a good choice. Thanks. Um, it took and- like two years to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, that's, that seems to be the way that it goes. Like, and yeah. you got to stick it out and, like I said earlier, like this is basically the advice you're giving to writers who are trying to get published in the, the Paris Review. Yeah. And you you have to walk the walk if you're going to be the the editor telling people to do that. Yeah. So, but it's hard. It's harder, you know, when you're the yeah. writer. It's like, oh no, this is good enough, right? I mean, yeah. you understand that impulse, and I think too, there's such a desire to publish right. in writers of ambition. Um, you have something to say. You've been working so hard. You want to see that thing in print there, you know, I understand that feeling well, and right. it can be easy to rush something into print. Something might even make it into print and it could have been so much better right. had you taken another two years, but right. you know, that can be a hard There's sell. a version of chapter two out in the world and I love it. I mean, it's still good the way it is, but I cut 2000 words. It was 15,000 words as it appears in the Iowa review. I, you know, I streamlined that, hmm. um, and, and rewrote the ending in a way that felt so much better. So with so much stuff going on in your professional life yeah. and so many demands on you and your time, like, can you talk just a little bit? Cause I know, I mean, there are people listening who have a similar situation in terms of just lots of different responsibilities yeah. and a feeling of time pressure. Mm-hmm. How, like first question would be like, where do you read? Cause you have to, it's not just like reading casually. You've got to concentrate if you're mm-hmm. working editorially and likewise, you have to concentrate if you're writing. Mm-hmm. So how do you break up your day and how do you have yeah. like a system? I read mostly at home. I mean, I'll get a few things done in the office, but that's a lot either more, um, you know, 
meetings and collaborative work with my colleagues or working on the interview series. I do a lot of that editing in the office. Um, but when I'm reading for acquisition, um, I do most of that at home. It's just, you know, sort of a, a comfy space to, to work and a place I can concentrate. Um, writing, you know, eight, um, I'm still sort of trying to find my groove in New York. I have, we splurged on a two bedroom apartment. So we have an office and I am profoundly grateful to have a space. I mean, it's doing, you know, triple duty. It's my partner's office. It's my office. It's where I write. It's where I draw all the saxophones, where you several, play, where you play sax <laughs> several late, guitars late into the night. and it's our, you know, and we have an air mattress that fits exactly between the two desks. If you enter from the foot of said air mattress. So it's our guest room too, you know? So it, but it's a it's a real luxury and a real gift to have that space to work at home. And that's where I do my writing. Um, I'm like a little neurotic about sound. So people talking or cafes or even music with words gets very distracting. Yeah, for I don't me. know how people do music with words. Um, I, so I listen to a lot of, you know, contemporary classical or 20th century work. Um, Philip Glass is like a really good happy place for my writing. Um, I'm best in the mornings. And so I'll try to, um, get that work done. Uh, But I'm like, in terms of drafting new stuff or, um, you know, I haven't been working on a lot of new fiction, but I've got some stories kicking around. Um, a lot of my generative ideas are sort of very rough, but come quickly at, at night. (laughs) And so I, I might, you know, spend an hour getting something down on paper. Um, before bed and then I'll get up and, you know, for me, 95% of the work is in revision and expansion and excision and all of that fun stuff. Um, can you edit? I mean, I guess you gotta be able to, hmm. we just said, I mean, I guess the question I was sort of heading towards is like, do you find that you have blind spots when it comes to your own work that you probably wouldn't, if you're looking at somebody else's, I guess you're so close to it. You're going to miss certain things. Yeah. I mean, I definitely miss certain things, but I'm also, I think because there, you know, I'll go for spells where I won't be able to think about my work, um, for anyway, from anywhere from a couple of days to, you know, if it's a really busy time at the magazine, a couple of weeks and there's a certain objective detachment. It's like running into an old friend. You're like, Oh, hello draft. How are you? You have food on your face. Yeah. And, um, at that point there's such enthusiasm to get back into it but also um it's of course it's my writing i'm not gonna say it's someone else's writing but it's fresh enough that i feel like i can um look at it like an editor and and figure out um somewhere in between an editor and writer you know do the generative work of revision but also be objective about this isn't working um in a way that that distance is helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good, I think it's good advice for anybody to put something away. If if you're too immersed in it uh, too consistently, I think you lose perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So you let it cool off. And I think sometimes it can just be hard to stay away. And yeah, I mean, in that cooling off period, you know, I'm lucky that I'm engaging in short fiction that whole time in terms of, you know, almost always the cooling off is to go pick up the magazine. Um, But that cooling off could be something else. It can be reading, you know, a body of work from a writer that you think could be helpful. It could be going to a museum. It could be listening to music. Um, I think it's important to stay engaged with creative expression, but um, 
it's okay to step away from the manuscript. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's advisable even yeah. in certain cases, but I have to ask like, um, uh, obligatory, I mean, a, you're in LA. So I'm like, I'm thinking of film, the film rights to the book. Yeah. I'm thinking of Kevin Costner because he's like the baseball movie guy. Yeah. Has there been any like action around this? Cause I it, have a TV agent and we're, we're having some talks. Nothing's done yet. Um, you're not leaving here and going to Kevin Costner's house. No, Okay. no. Um, have you spoken with Kevin Costner? No, I haven't. <laughs> um, you know, David Duchovny wrote a baseball-ish book for FSG, and so we got hooked up, and he did um, my launch event with me, and he was like, this is a cinematic book. Is it becoming a movie? And I was like, ah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> will you start? No, I didn't say that. But, um, you know, I'm a visual storyteller. I just I, I care about um the way things look, I, I like writing about places and being descriptive of not just people's inner lives, but their their physical environment. So I think there's a pretty good blueprint in the book for how this could, you know, jump over to um, cinematic storytelling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's also, this is sort of like a happy accident, but you are, you know, you started this book before the Paris Review was ever really a possibility for right. you. And then now you're the editor of the Paris Review, and you've written a sports novel. Right. Well, I was reading Paper Lions in 2012, that stack of books that, you know, um, this is George Plimpton's participatory journalism about being the backup quarterback for the Detroit Lions. And yeah, so I've been thinking about him and, um, and sports writing and the intersection of you know, literary writing and the possibility of sports as a narrative engine for a long time. I don't know what you were going well, to ask. It just, I feels, it just feels like sort of nice, like a kind of carrying of the torch almost, you yeah. know, like that you've written this novel, but it like, it, it wasn't something you decided to do after you became, Oh no, it's something that just sort of, but then George was there in your research. Yeah. George was there in my so research. So then maybe the, you know, the, the gods or, or the angels are on your shoulder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody's smiling. And, um, wasn't the Paris review, in its earliest days, like sort of funded by the CIA. Am I crazy? I, Did I read that somewhere? You read that somewhere. I don't know anything about it. You know, are you CIA? <laughs> no, I am not. Are I you am wearing not. a wire? What's I going am, on? No. Okay. Uh, well, I have so enjoyed meeting you and talking with you and congratulations Thank on uh, the success of your book. I hope at some point you get to meet Kevin Costner, even just to meet him. Yeah. I'm thinking that might be in your future. I don't know. But okay. uh, I wish you... Is he outside? <laughs> he is, actually. I, I have him waiting for you. Thank you. We have the film crew here. Yeah. Um, but congratulations on everything and best of luck on whatever comes next. Thank you, Brad. Okay, there you go, folks. That's Emily Nemmons. Her new novel, her debut novel, The Cactus League, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find her online at emilynemmons.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at emilynemmons. She's also got an Instagram. Once again, that book, that novel, is called The Cactus League. Go get your copy right now. You can also subscribe to the uh, Paris Review while you're at it. Check out their website at theparisreview.org. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. Thanks to my sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. Thanks to my other sponsor, Grey Wolf Press. If you would like to write to me, if you have something you would like to say to me, you need to uh, get something off your chest, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. 
If you like this program, if you uh, have special affection for it, if you feel that it is a uh, nourishing cultural experience, you can support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own app, the official Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free wherever you get your apps. So I hope your uh, Super Tuesday went well. I'm recording this before we know any results, so... Living in a bubble of uncertainty. Next Wednesday on the program... Hmm. I don't know. I have a lot in the can. I might do another Sunday episode. It's either going to be April Davila or Aaron Eileen Almond. Those are my next two guests in the pipeline. Excellent conversations with both. Be on the lookout. Stay in the ready position. (laughs) 